week in Jamaica, there were four different churches that had come together. An interesting fact is that one of these churches, Siler Presbyterian Church, a sister church from North Carolina, whose leadership had been here when we hosted Presbytery before we divided into the three Presbyteries that we currently are, are in. As it turned out, both we and they were flying in and out of Charlotte, and we shared the same flight to and from Jamaica. During the week there, we uh, every evening, we would have a small group period of time where our church would gather in this small group time. And as part of our time, we would spend the time considering a selected passage that we had read and contemplated earlier that day. And I have selected and expanded on two of these passages because they teach foundational truths that are applicable for every believer in every age and culture. Today, in our culture, it's not uncommon to hear phrases like, God loves you as you are. The sentiment and intent behind such a statement is good, but it is deceptively deficient in biblical accuracy. God does not love us as we are. A more accurate statement would be something like this. If God loves you, he will meet you where you are, but he will never leave you as you are. Why? To leave us as we are is not love. To love us as we are would mean that there is no necessity for the gospel, no need for Christ. We must move from where we are, but we are not capable of doing the necessary moving on our own. The truth of the matter is, as Paul reminds us, there is no one who is righteous, no one who seeks God, and no one who is good. We have each turned from God and have gone our own way. We are naturally lost and need to be found. To be left as we are is to remain lost and to miss the gospel. This is to remain in sin and therefore to be condemned by God. Once a person hears the gospel and upon their coming to faith, they are immediately set upon the journey of sanctification. This is a journey that leads them from where they are to become more and more like the one in whom they now are. They are Christ's. Paul states it this way when he speaks to the Roman believers. In Romans 8, he says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Sanctification is God's conforming process where he brings all who believe into a more developed image of his son. Sanctification is a growing, maturing process where each believer is moved along throughout life into a deeper relationship with God. From the scripture passages that we have read together, it is this portion of maturity and its expression in our everyday lives that I want us to focus on this morning. A question that comes to every believer is the question that Francis Schaeffer put this way. How shall we then live? Being in the world but not of it, how ought a Christian's maturity be lived and developed while existing in but not of an unbelieving world? 
From the two passages we read, you will notice how believers are expected to be something different from what they were because they are now in Christ. They are to no longer remain where and how they were before belief. They are to be noticeably different from those of the unbelieving world around them. Because the believer is made new, they have life that is different from those who do not know him. The application of this new life was at the heart of the issue for the early church as they wrestled with this same question, how ought we then live? What made this such an issue for those in the first reading was history. The first believers were Jewish. God's word and law came, had come to all through the descendants of Abraham. It was to Abraham's children and descendants the sign of God's relationship and covenant circumcision was given. The Jews grew up recognizing the importance of their place in the world as being the people through whom God would be made known. They were distinguished from all others through the practice of circumcision. This right forever changed their physical body and was a positive outward sign of the cutting away of sin through belief and obedience to God. Negatively, however, it represented the removal of God's favor if persistent in disobedience to him and his word. In more modern times, the practice of circumcision was even used against some who tried to keep their ethnicity secret during the Nazi regime. This permanent physical change was something one could not easily hide. In the first century, many Jewish Christian believers considered circumcision a necessary practice for anyone coming to faith to enter into this covenant relationship with God. For them, true belief meant one had to be circumcised to fo- and follow the Jewish customs. After all, this had been done throughout history. Before Christ, when a Gentile believed in the true God, they were required to be circumcised and follow the Jewish customs. By doing this, the believer would, in essence, be giving up their non-Jewishness to become Jewish through both belief and practice. In our first reading, this is the historical backdrop to the dilemma being faced by the early church leaders. For some Jewish believers, it was essential and therefore stressed that for Gentile believers coming to faith in Christ, they must also receive the physical sign of the previous covenant. The Gentiles, having lived outside any previous knowledge of God, when they believed, were also given the Holy Spirit, just like the circumcised Jews upon their belief in Christ, though they themselves were not circumcised. Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles did not put before them circumcision as a requirement for their faith. But others brought up in this tradition, in particular the Pharisees, believed and taught how this practice must continue. Not only must one believe in Jesus, but they must also take upon themselves the sign of the old covenant, circumcision. This difference in application brought about the first church council, the Jerusalem council, to decide the matter, how shall we then live? So talking about the history of what brought about this dilemma, the point I want to make from our reading is not so much about what brought about the council, 
but to consider the council's conclusion to the problem that was set before them. Look again at Acts 15, verses 19 through 20. Notice the response given to the problem. It is their response I want to focus upon. After coming to faith, what did the elders and the apostles tell the Gentiles, and by extension all who believe, how one ought to live? Acts 15 says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Now, the council wrote a brief letter stating these very things and sent it to the various churches where the apostles' teaching had been challenged. As we read these words, it may seem that the issue that brought about the council was an issue that was not even being really addressed. The issue of Gentile Christians taking on Jewish customs to be Christian wasn't even stated. At first glance, the council's response seems to be quite simple and maybe even a little off topic because, after all, there is nothing said about circumcision or keeping Jewish customs. What is said, however, gets to the point that I want us to notice, grapple with, and apply. The conclusion of the matter is simply this. Gentile believers were not required to become Jewish by custom to become Christian. Belief in Christ is sufficient for salvation for anyone. Gentiles were to indeed believe in Christ, but they were not to separate themselves from their own ethnicity and become Jewish in practice to do so. What they were to separate themselves from, or if you would, be circumcised from, were those things their unbelieving culture was about. Being Gentiles, the culture from which they came did not reflect much of Christian faith. All their culture was directed toward false gods and the practices acceptable to these various gods that they worshipped. Notice how the church's counsel was for them to simply cease with common expressions associated with their unbelieving culture. Their life and lifestyle were now in Christ. This new life can no longer be reflected by continuing in the practices of their former unbelieving lives. The practice of their unbelieving culture was not too or is not too dissimilar to our own. Simply stated, they were to stop practicing idolatry and to stop practicing sexual immorality. These were linked to the common expressions of their unbelieving world. And like them, both practices are very common in the unbelieving culture in which we live. How prevalent is sex and sexuality used and abused in our culture today? How often do we hear about it in its various forms and expressions? The application of the Council's message to our lives is just as imperative today as it was then. In thinking about how we ought to then live, for those who believe in Christ, we too are to separate from our unbelieving culture's accepted practices of idolatry and sexual immorality. Now, for the sake of clarity, let me state a couple definitions simply. 
Idolatry does not necessarily mean having or bowing to a statue that we believe is God. Idolatry is giving to any created thing the honor, prestige, devotion, desire, or priority that belongs to God. This means I can make any thing, even a good thing, an idol, if I ascribe to it an inordinate devotion. Common accepted idols in our culture would be one's work, house, car, family, finances, education, athleticism, sports involvement, academic achievement, our retirement plan, our health care plan, our leisure, being able to sleep in, attitude, politics, church attendance, community involvement, volunteerism, etc. And these are just a few. John Calvin noted that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. As believers applying the conclusion of the Jerusalem Council to our lives, we too are being warned to guard against engaging in practices acceptable and associated with the unbelieving culture and to keep from idolatry. Now, the second term we need to have a common definition on is the term sexual immorality. Simply put, sexual immorality is a more general category of sexual sins used to describe all sorts of illicit sexual misconduct and the improper use of the body. There is no doubt that God has created us as sexual beings. We are male and female for a reason. However, he also puts bounds upon the proper use of the sexuality that he created. An expression of sexuality outside of these boundaries, either heterosexually or homosexually, is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, as defined by stepping beyond the boundaries set by the Creator, was rampant in the Roman world from which these Gentile believers lived. Thus, to live as believers in their world, they were to distance themselves from these immoral expressions so common in their unbelieving culture. Likewise, for us, the excuse, everybody's doing it, or the church needs... <clears throat> the church needs to keep up with the changing times, has no standing for the faithful believer. We learn from our reading in Acts how the Gentile believers no longer must observe those Jewish practices of the law that Christ has fulfilled. As Jesus told Lazarus when he raised him from the dead to come out and take off his grave clothes, a believer, too, coming to new life, must respond to Jesus' call, come out of the grave, so to speak, and take off their grave clothes. We are no longer dead in sin, so it is no longer appropriate for us to wear the garb of the dead, which are those things coming from an unbelieving culture. Now, it's not practical or adequate to simply stop doing something. One must replace it and begin doing another. The question, how ought a mature believer live, remains. This is where our second passage from Galatians comes in. Paul, writing to the believers in the region of Galatia, those impacted by the decision of the Jerusalem Council, instructs them on living out their faith in Christ through a simple analogy. His words to them echoed much of what the Jerusalem Council had earlier said, but is given through a word picture. 
He speaks of giving up on living a life consistent with unbelief and how the believer ought no longer be marked by similarity and conformity to an unbelieving culture, but to live differently. Considering this command to not live in conformity to the unbelieving culture, is it not interesting how much of the, of the modern American church wants to keep up with and in step with our culture? How can the unbelieving adequately set the standard for the believer? One way the church falls prey to this notion is to engage in a worship or to engage in worship in a way that is appealing or more palatable to the unbelieving world. Why are they the focus of worship? Why should believers let the interest and desires of unbelievers set the direction for worship? To whom and for what purpose is worship directed? Worship is not evangelism. It is not to make me feel good. It is not to entertain even though elements of these may at times appear and even be employed. Worship is not about me. It is about God and the believer's expression of worship to him. To place our or another's interest and desires over God sounds to me a bit like we are dangerously close to making our worship expression and experience into an idol. When we give to other things the attention and devotion belonging to God, it becomes idolatry. If I am giving the wrong priority to the wrong thing, it is an idol. How easy idolatry is for us. Noting our propensity for idolatry, how ought a mature believer live? Notice how Paul gives the Galatians this word. To show yourself a believer, you must live out the fruit of the Spirit. Look with me again at Galatians 5, and 23. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Paul contrasts these believing behaviors with and against the common, unfamiliar, or the common and familiar unbelieving behaviors. When we first read this passage, did you notice the contrasting, unbelieving list of sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, and orgies? Quite a contrast in lifestyles between believers and unbelievers. Fruit is the product of the fruit tree. The fruit tree, in Paul's analogy, is the believer. These qualities are the product of the believer. For the believer, the listing of fruit here is not listing of various fruit from which to pick. Notice how Paul lists these by saying the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, etc. The use of is shows how this list of fruit is singular. For the believer, through the Holy Spirit, we each are given and possess these qualities. This fruit is what is to be the mark of maturing believers. Think of these various qualities or fruit like facets on a gemstone. These facets show and sparkle depending on the angle in which you look at the singular stone. As we grow in our faith and maturity, 
It is the facet or the fruit of the Spirit that is shining depending upon the circumstance we are being observed. A Christian ought not display simply love or gentleness or self-control, but all the fruit, like the facets on a gem, so all in all circumstances the Spirit is on display in our lives. For the believer, these qualities increase and mature as one grows in his or her faith. Think of it as a gemstone being polished. Now, for some Christian groups, it is said that true evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life is when you speak in tongues. A danger with this being the test of the indwelling of the Spirit is that gifts can be and are easily counterfeited, whereas fruit cannot. Fruit is the product of one's life. If the fruit of the Spirit is displayed, this is evidence of Christian maturity and can only come through the Holy Spirit's involvement in your life. Jesus uses this same principle of authenticity when he warns us against false prophets by having us observe the fruit of their life. In Matthew 7, he says this, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. What is the fruit being displayed in your life? Is it more in line with the culture and what it deems as important, or is it seeking God first and the building of his kingdom? Is the tree of your life good, where it produces the mature fruit of the Spirit, or is your tree unhealthy and your fruit puny and underdeveloped? The fruit of the Spirit is evidence of Christian maturity. How does one's fruit grow and mature? Well, keeping with the agricultural analogy, Jesus tells how good fruit is produced. He says it must be pruned. In John 15, he tells his disciples, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. But pruning is never comfortable. This is even more true as we live in a world that emphasizes the escape from discomfort. Do not misunderstand my intention in saying this. There is much benefit in the medical profession, for example, that provides the alleviation of pain. However, the excessive desire to escape pain, even for the believer escaping the pain of pruning, has led to self-medicating abuse, addictions, and bitterness towards the gardener. Why are things we like cut away? As Jesus tells us, it is to develop our fruit and make it better. The fruit of the believer is given to display the evident difference between belief and unbelief. The problem with the avoidance of pain is that it refuses to notice the gardener at work within us. 
The author of Hebrews reminds us in chapter 5 about God's discipline. He says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. God is in the process of maturing you. This is sanctification. The maturing process involves pruning, which is God's discipline, and at times is painful. It is painful because the things being cut away are things you are attached to. But the gardener is good, and there is purpose to his pruning and the cutting away of these things. With every hardship or discipline we face, we are given an opportunity to identify an idol in our lives. As maturing, as a maturing believer, we can find, uh, say, with the loss of a job, in whom or what I've been trusting. With the decline of health, I can identify the thing or things I depend on more so than God. With the loss of a loved one, I am made aware of how the hopes I had were misplaced in the person instead of with God. With the loss of finances, do I believe God will provide my needs? In these, do I become bitter because I feel I'm not being treated fairly or in some way think that God owes me more? The author of Hebrews reminds us to not make light of the Lord's discipline. One can only grow in maturity and not make light of his discipline when they trust the gardener to be a good gardener, one who has their best in mind and who seek to make their fruit better. Are the facets or the fruit of the Spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control being seen in your life? This is the measure of how a mature Christian ought to live. Let's pray.